Good morning, my church family. It's good to see all of you gathered here. It's good to welcome those of you who are online. We are continuing in a sermon series that we're calling Four. Often Christians are known for the things that they are against, the things that they are opposed to. We think it's worthwhile, though, pausing once in a while to declare those things that we as Christians are for, that we've been called by the Lord Jesus to champion. We are for our community. We are for our city. We are for our neighborhood. We are for our crews, our life groups, our small groups, being engaged in mission and ministry together. And today I want to talk about our most basic of crews. I want to talk about our, our family. What would it look like if, if your family was on mission together? Whatever your family looks like, what would it look like if that family was a mission unit? Honestly, many church-going families, I think, view that what happens within these walls for one or two hours every week, that's kind of the extent of their involvement in the mission of God. You'd kind of do your spiritual stuff inside these walls, but the real world, the, the rest of life, that's what happens outside of these walls. But what if every family that was a part of this church, whatever they look like, understood that, that they are on mission together, that their homes are mission stations in the middle of their neighborhood? What if every child was raised up to understand that their call as disciples of Jesus Christ doesn't begin and end within the boundaries of the church walls, but rather that this is their training ground for their real mission? A mission that is centered in the family and in the home and outwardly turned. That's what I want to look at today. And we're going to look at two different families that come out of one of the richest chapters in the book of Acts. Acts 16. It may be my favorite chapter in the book of Acts. The first family that we are going to meet is led by a remarkable businesswoman named Lydia. Now, you actually met her back on Mother's Day. I preached on Lydia back on Mother's Day, but she's worth revisiting, and I want to come at it from a different angle. Lydia was the leader of a group of God-fearing women who wanted to worship God, to worship the one true God, and so they came together for a prayer gathering uh, near the river outside of the city of Philippi which was a European city. So I want you to listen to the encounter that the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions had with Lydia and her friends in the start of our story today. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16, and we will begin with verse 13. Acts 16, verse 13. This is the writing of of Dr. Luke, who was one of Paul's traveling companions. Luke writes, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One of who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. 
So Holy Spirit, just as you did for Lydia, open our hearts to what you want to say to us today. Make us compliant, make us pliant, make us willing to be led by you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I love that phrase. It, it reminds us, in fact, that every one of us who has come to know the Lord Jesus did so because of the initiative of God. We are told in the text that the Lord opened Lydia's heart. It was God who was initiating, God who was reaching out and, and caused her to receive the good news of the gospel as Paul proclaimed it to her. And we are told that she believed in Jesus and that she was baptized, probably in that very river that, that she was uh, nearby there. But not only was she baptized, we are told that her entire household was baptized. Pay attention to that. We're not sure what her household looked like, whether it was kids, whether it was servants, whether it was extended family members, but we are told the whole bunch of them were baptized into the faith of Jesus. And then we're told that Lydia urged Paul to make her home the base of operations. Did you see that? I wish you could understand that the Greek word for urged is way stronger than urged. It was like she insisted. You almost sense this, this capable businesswoman who was running this, this industry of her own of the selling of purple goods. She put all of her, her best uh, efforts into selling Paul on this idea. She said, I want you to stay here. Make my home your base of operations. She kind of twisted his arm and said, I'm not going to take no for an answer. Lydia's home became the first European church, and Lydia's household, whoever comprised that, became the first members of their very first European church plant. We're going to come back to that story in just a moment, but I want you to tuck that one away just for a little bit. Now, I want you to hear from a second, even more unlikely family who ended up on mission together there in Philippi, okay? Okay. Paul continued in his ministry after he had this encounter with Lydia and the women at the, at the riverside by Philippi. He continued in his ministry and in the course of his time in Philippi, he encountered a young girl who was demon-possessed. And by that evil spirit, she was able to predict the future. And Paul finally cast that evil spirit out of that young girl as the, the Lord Jesus had had commanded us to do and, and had done himself. He cast that evil spirit out, which was great for the girl, but not so great for her owners who were making bank on this girl's ability to tell the future. And they were irritated that they had lost this cash flow. And so they had Paul and Silas arrested, illegally beaten with rods until their backs were raw, and they were thrown into the dungeon of the Philippi prison. So I want you to listen to what happens next in the story. We pick it up and again, Acts 16, but now we drop down to verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, to commit suicide, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. I heard the other day about a young family that was touring through Gig Harbor. They were new to our community, and so they began to do a, a kind of driving tour around our beautiful community. And they kept exclaiming how beautiful it was. 
beautiful waterfront, beautiful homes, beautiful downtown, beautiful trees, beautiful new schools. They were beside themselves. Finally, they happened to drive by our women's correctional center in that direction. And the four-year-old daughter exclaimed how beautiful that was too. She said, when I get to prison, I want to go to that one. (laughs) I'm sure that her parents are going to do everything they can to make sure she doesn't get that wish. That she doesn't end up the resident of our most beautiful jail facility. But, But then again, Paul wasn't planning on going to jail either. He was just going about his business, and yet he landed in the Philippian dungeon with astonishing results. I love this story. It's one of my favorite accounts from the book of Acts, which is so rich with stories. And there are many inspiring aspects about it. For instance, as I told you earlier, Paul and Silas had been beaten with rods, probably a handful of rods about the size of your little finger. It was such a brutal treatment that it would leave their backs entirely raw. And then having been thus beaten, they were locked into wooden stocks, which were enormously painful. And it was in the deepest, darkest, dankest, dirtiest inner dungeon of the Philippian jail. And uh, what is it that they did after they were in that place? What was their response to that cruel, abusive treatment? Yes, and we read that they sang and they prayed and they did so loudly that all of the rest of the prisoners in the jail heard them. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Oh, that we could respond to our times of struggle with that kind of hope and joy by singing and praying in the face of, of, our, of our struggles. God then sends an earthquake in answer to their prayers. And it was, it was like a precision strike earthquake. It didn't, didn't level everything. It was a, a, an earthquake so precise that the doors of the jail flew open. The shackles of the prisoners uh, fell off of them. And yet the walls did not fall on them and no one was harmed. Now that's pretty impressive too. That's, that's a precision strike. I think you would agree. But it's the jailer that I really want to focus on this morning. Every Roman jailer knew the consequences if a prisoner escaped. The consequences was he'd pay for it with his life. You lose a prisoner, you lose your life. That was one of the reasons that the Roman jails were so secure, because the jailers knew precisely what was at stake. And so when he opened his eyes from his slumber and discovered the the prison doors were open and the shackles were off, he drew his sword. He was going to just do himself in. He could probably do it less painfully than would be done to him by the authorities. I want you to listen now to the rest of the story. Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then they brought him out, them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. 
And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. We just spent three months studying Paul's letter to the Philippians. You remember that, I'm sure. This joy-filled letter that Paul wrote when he himself was in prison in Rome. Well, Paul opens that letter, if you will recall, by saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In other words, he said, every time I think of you, I thank God of the, the wonderful memories that I have, the memories of your, these faithful, generous, courageous believers who are on the frontier of the European tr Christian movement. And surely, Paul must, as he, as he thought about the people for whom he was so grateful, surely these two families must have been near the top of his mind, among the sweetest of Paul's memories. Lydia, this single, hard-working, shrewd businesswoman. But she was obviously a, a spiritual leader, and she was searching for God. He remembers her. And then there was the jailer, who was a Roman soldier, a veteran, probably married, probably a, a pagan worshiper of, of the pantheon of Roman gods. So they are two very different families, two very different family leaders, but both of them were on mission to and through their family. And that's what I want us to see this morning. These families were both the object of mission and then the agent of mission. The object of mission and the agent of mission. And I want to talk about what it would mean if that were true for us as well. First, these families were the object of mission. When Lydia encountered Jesus at that riverside in her prayer meeting, she brought that message right back to her family. And we are told that she was baptized along with her entire household, her whole family. In like fashion, after the jailer met Jesus in his dark and broken prison, he brought Paul and his message back to his own home. His entire house was baptized. And they rejoiced, we are told, of the privilege of knowing God. So for both Lydia and the Philippian jailer, their first mission priority was to their family, their spouse, the, their children, their servants, their extended family. And for those of you who are leaders in your family, I would say that the first object they are the first object of the mission of Jesus in your life. Every family leader who is listening today, you need to let this sink in. Your family is the first and most important mission of your life. Whether you are a single mom or single dad doing it all on your own, or whether you are a mom and dad who are doing it in partnership, the spiritual lives of your family are your first and greatest priority. The salvation of your spouse, if you have one, the salvation of your children, of your extended family, of your grandchildren, they ought to be your greatest passion. They ought to be the object of your prayer, the object of your witness, the object of your example. And it starts with you. Your faith is more caught than taught. Your faith is more caught than taught. If you are indifferent about your own spiritual condition, if you are blasé about your own spiritual vitality, if you view your commitment to God as basically being a one-hour nod to God on Sunday morning, if you view the spiritual nurture of your family as our job, something that you hire us church professionals to, to take care of, 
on your behalf, I will just tell you, you are abdicating your most important calling on this earth, the fitting of your family for an eternity with God. The mission of Jesus belong, begins with your spiritual leadership, your influence upon your own family. And I promise you, that is the philosophy of our children's ministry here. That is the philosophy of our student ministry here. They exist to help you, the primary Christian educators of your family, in your spiritual mission to your children, to your grandchildren, and to the rest of your family. That is our purpose here, to assist you in your mission. I was talking this last week with a man in his 80s. He said, you know, as my kids were growing up, I had no idea of the concept that I was the priest for my family. It was one of my greater regrets. As he looked back over his long life, he regretted that he had not been more proactively involved in leading his family into a deeper and personal relationship with Christ. I have to say, by the way, I don't think he was giving, doing himself justice because sitting right next to him was his 60-year-old son who loves Jesus and is in that life group together. So I, he, he did something right, but he still looked back and thought of the ways that he should have been at work in leading his family to know the Lord. So how about you, you family leaders? Is your family the first object of your Christian mission? Do you speak of your faith to them? Do you talk of world affairs from a Christian perspective? Instead of just lamenting what you see on the headlines, do you talk about the impact of the gospel and what it might have in these horrible situations and times in which we live? Do you pray with your family ever? Do you pray for your family ever? Do you model faithful church attendance to them? Do you model generosity for them? The troubling statistic is that 60% of our children and grandchildren, 60% of the kids that have been raised up in our church, when they head off to university, 60% of them will never return to church or to their faith. We are fighting brutal, bitter cultural headwinds. I spoke to a mom this week whose daughter graduated from a Christian college and is questioning her faith on the heels of four years of that education. I talked to another mom whose adult son has rejected the faith in which he was raised, and she's wondering what she ought to do about it. I'm aware even this week of a, of a young woman who was once active in the church, but has now pulled away. There are no guarantees about anything, of course. Each individual is precisely that. Each one is totally dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit, as Lydia was, to turn their hearts to be responsive to the promptings of the Lord Jesus in their life. But at the end of the day, you want to look back, don't you, and say that you did everything you could in your power to lead your family to a vital, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no higher calling. So for both Lydia and the jailer, their family was firstly the object of the mission of Christ, but then it became the agent of mission. After her entire family was baptized, as I told you, Lydia twisted Paul's arm. She insisted that he and his friends stay there with her and make that their home, their mission station. 
And so her home became the very first church in Europe. Jailer, the jailer opened his home to Paul, and, and in one of the most tender passages, and perhaps sweetly ironic passages, we read that, that the jailer washed the wounds that he himself had inflicted upon the prisoners with the beating of those rods, and then in a wonderful turnabout face, the prisoners washed him and his family in the waters of baptism. The men he once brutalized, he now comforted and fed, and his home became a place of mission, a place of healing. I wonder how many in this church body, I wonder how many in my hearing today would view your family as an agent of mission. How many of you view your home as a Christian outpost in your neighborhood? A place where your neighbors can be fed and comforted and healed and taught. You know, we speak often of our castles as our homes as our, as our castles, right? But it is not a, a very Christian image. What is a castle? It has impregnable walls and it has a moat. A castle is intended to keep people out. But these two families today made their homes into centers of Christian mission and hospitality and healing. More a hospital than a castle. And I'll confess to you, beloved, that this is still a growth area for me, your pastor. When we moved into our new neighborhood three years ago, we purposed that we were going to do a better job of loving our neighbors in a way that we hadn't in our previous neighborhood. And so we've been trying. We've got a, a map with the houses and the names on the houses taped to the inside of a pantry door so that every time we open the door, we see them. We are learning more and more about them. We have learned their names. We're praying for them. We had an open house. We're going to a block party this afternoon. Let me tell you something. The last thing I want to do on a Sunday afternoon is go to a block party. I want to sleep in my recliner in front of a golf game. That's what I want to do on a Sunday. But we are going to the block party, by golly. I want to view my home as more than a castle. I want to view our home as as a hospital, as a refuge instead of a, instead of a refuge as a fortress for me. I want to view it as a mission statement, station. And, and I have much to learn from Lydia and, and from the jailer about what it means for our family, for Cindy and me to be on mission together, for our home to be a center of healing and hope and hospitality. How about you? As I read through this story this time, and I've read it so many times, but every, it's the wonder about God's Word. It always seems to jump out. Something new captures you, I think, by the Spirit. And I was reading through it this time, and something jumped out that I had never really focused on before. I noticed that when the, the jailer pulled his sword to kill himself, Paul cried out, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. Do not harm yourself. We are all here. And I began to wonder, who is it who needs around us, who needs to hear those words of hope and comfort from us? Do not harm yourself. We are all here for you. This week, a 20-year-old young man who is connected with our church took his life. What, 
What, would, what if he had heard some of us crying out, do not harm yourself. We are all here for you. As you know, depression, despair, anxiety, drug, and alcohol abuse have gone through the roof in these last year and a half. How many people around us near, need to hear us say, do not harm yourself in this way. We are all here for you. And marriages, marriages are collapsing in record number. Spouses are throwing up their hands and saying, I'm done. Particularly a large number of women are saying, I'm done and walking away. How many of them need to hear us cry out, do not harm yourself in this way. We are all here for you. We are surrounded by prisoners, people who are shackled by pain and failure and negative self-image. Shackled by debt and doubt and depression and despair who are living meaningless lives in meaningless careers. And most of those neighbors will likely never make it through our doors to help the, to find the help that, that we can offer. But they might make it through your doors if you'll open them, if you'll invite them, if they hear your family calling out to them, do not harm yourself. We are all here for you, welcoming them, healing them, worshiping with them, feeding all in the name of Jesus. I have an ongoing correspondence with a friend who is in prison. He'll be in prison for a long time. And of course, it's hard for him to be there. And it's been made doubly hard because he just learned that he has cancer. And so he's going to have to have surgery. My friend is a family of one. Like the Apostle Paul, his home is a prison cell. His mission field inside those barbed wire walls. But he is on a mission in that place. And he shared with me a prayer that he recently wrote. A prayer with which I want to close. Because I, I think this prayer is a call to all of us to point to the Lord. Point to God. Wherever it is that he might have placed us. So, would you join me in praying the prayer of my imprisoned friend? Lord, you stretch out your hand across the heavens and the stars shine. You breathe over the lands and life arises with joy. You call the cool waters from the mountains to refresh my soul. Your love is manifest in the beauty of your creation. The seas are filled with your wonder and the high places with your stillness. You whisper and the galaxies spin. Your glory outshines an infinite number of suns and yet with all your majesty, beauty, and completeness, you wanted one thing more and gave what was the most precious. You gave of yourself for this wisp. You hold your beloved in warm embrace and speak words of promise and peace. How is it that you are mindful of me? I, among the small of your creation, whose life is but vapor floating on a quiet breeze and then is no more. 
how can I doubt that you will be with me in this trial? What may I learn from that which lies ahead? Oh, let me never take my eyes off my Abba, my agape. Let me endlessly rejoice in whatever comes. I long to see my Lord run to me. What an endless celebration will be had. The night has been long, but the sun is coming, and in his kingdom, pain, sorrow, bitterness, remorse, regret, defeat, and retreat will end forever, never to be again. His throne will remain forever and ever. It will be so. And so, Lord, as we pray the prayer of my friend, may our own homes, our own families reflect this kind of hope to those imprisoned around us. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. We're the home.